Hello. Welcome to the Fantastic Fiction at KGB podcast. I'm Rajan Khanna. Fantastic Fiction at KGB is a monthly reading series held on the third Wednesday of every month at the famous KGB bar in Manhattan's East Village. Fantastic Fiction is hosted by Ellen Datlow and Matthew Kressel and features up-and-comers and luminaries in the fields of science fiction, fantasy, and horror. The following audio was recorded live at the KGB bar, so please excuse the various background noises, bumps in the night, and other disturbances that you might hear. It's a live reading in New York City, and anything can and often does happen. And now, on to this month's reading. We hope you enjoy the following recording, and we thank you for listening. everybody. Welcome to Fantastic Fiction. Oh, yeah, thank you, yeah. Welcome to Fantastic Fiction at KGB. Um, Matthew Kressel, my usual partner in crime, is off in, he's hiking. He just sent his gorgeous pictures from Zion National Park. But anyway, um, and he's he's never coming back. (laughs) He'll be back next month. Meantime, uh, David Mercurio Rivera is helping me, is the co-host tonight. And uh, for all of you, I assume most of you know what KG, this program has been going on for many years. You can sign up um, if you go to the KGB Fantastic Fiction KGB website, you can sign up and get email reminders, and the only thing we put on those reminders is about this. You know, you don't get any spam or anything else. Um, we've been doing this for a long time, and we have some upcoming readers I would like to mention. Um, September 19th, Patrick McGraw, spelled as McGrath, but it's pronounced McGraw, and Siobhan Carroll. And I just looked up, there was just a stupid thing, this little thing on a meme on Facebook, telling you how to pronounce Irish names. And it said something about Siobhan being pronounced Siobhan. And now I don't know. And I asked, I said, Siobhan, I don't know. I mean, I've always pronounced it Siobhan, so I have no idea if it's with a B or an A, a V. A B? That's what I thought. But no, according to these Irish people, it's not. So I actually tagged, I tagged Siobhan to ask her, so how do you pronounce your name? Have I been doing it wrong 10 years or not? Anyway, it's, it's pronounced, it's, Spelled like Shivan, which Shivan, but it's Shivan. I know, I know. Okay, anyway, October 17th, we have Lawrence M. Schoen, Tim and Tim Pratt. November 21st, we have Leanne Renee Heber and Kat Rambo. December 19th, we have Nicole Corner Stace and Maria Devana Headley. <clears throat> January 16th, we have Julie C. Day and Victor Laval. February 20th, we have F. Brett Cox and TK. And March 20, March 20, we have Molly Tanzer and TK. <clears throat> April 17th, we have Nathan Ballingren and Arkadine Martin. And May 15th, Simon Stronsis and TK. So that's our four. And it may change. I mean, it was originally in September, we had Kids Johnson and she had to cancel. So we never know. Anyway, our first person who's reading tonight is Jeffrey Ford. He's the author of the novels of Physiognomy, The Girl in the Glass, The Portrait of Mrs. Sh- Mrs. Sherbook, The Shadow Year, and the four collections, The Empire of Ice Cream, The Drowned Life, Crackpot Palace, and A Natural History of Hell. His most recent novel is Ahab's Return or The Last Voyage, which he has with him, and he's going to be reading from, I, I think. I will show you this. He will show, he doesn't have, we don't have anyone to sell them here, but you can buy them. Published by HarperCollins. He has been the recipient of the Nebula Award, the World Fantasy Award, and the Edgar Award. He lives in Ohio and teaches writing part-time at Ohio Wesleyan University. His book, his first novel, right? Yes. Thanatos, was published by Gordon Linsner here. 
and he has copies, and he has some copies for sale. There are copies for sale. You can buy them in, you know, midtime. This book goes. Yeah, I've seen it on online for like a hundred bucks. Which and you can get it eight dollars. Eight dollars. Eight dollars here. Gordon will sell it to you for ninety-nine. <laughs> and here's uh, we have some copies of his novella, The Twilight Pariah, that he will we will be giving away. I think we have like five copies, six copies. Jeff will thanks have to. to Irene. Yes, thanks, yeah. Irene Gallo from Tour. Um, Jeff can decide how we are giving them I'm away. I'm just going to throw them out there. Okay. <laughs> yeah. like anyway, concert. in the meantime, please welcome Jeffrey Ford. Yeah. Uh, it's great to be in New York again from Ohio. And it's great to see people, David and uh, Nick and, you know, Raj and uh, everything. Ellen and Rick and everybody, it's so good. And Big Sis here and Lynn's cousin Joe. <laughs> it's good to see everybody, Gordon. Um, I'm going to read. I, 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 when, I usually, when I come here, the times I've read here, and I've read here a lot, I usually read um, um, stories, a complete story. So I feel kind of bad doing this, but I got this book coming out next week, two weeks. And I gotta plug it. So, sorry guys. Ahab's Return, or The Last Voyage. My kid did the uh, manticore here. It's a female manticore. And uh, when he first get, did it for them, he put breasts on it, and they told him breasts are too disturbing. So he had to get rid of the breasts. And he called me up, he was like, Frumps, what the fuck? <laughs> anyway, all right. They did a nice job on the book, though. I'm just going to read the first chapter, and then here's the problem. I mean, you, I want to get into all the characters. There's a multitude of different types of characters in this book, but if I try to get to them now, it's going to ruin the reading experience for you. So I'm going to read the part before the good stuff happens, okay? And then I'm going to read a little bit of the good stuff, just a little bit, okay? The other thing I wanted to say was it's great to read with Michael. When I first started, and like now I get a lot of requests to do blurbs for people's books. When I first started out, I published books, but no one would give me a damn blurb. And Michael came through for me, the first person, gave me a, a great uh, introduction to one of my collections, and it's always been good to me since then. So I, I, it's great to read with him. I won't do this for inferior <laughs> <laughs> All right, here we go. November 1853, a blustery night somewhere in the middle of a long week. The infernal cuckoo clock in the offices of the Gorgon's Mirror, the premier five-cent illustrated rag of hokum in the great city of Manhattan sounded. Every hour on the hour, a skeleton, scythe in hand, pursued a hapless sinner out one door and round the Baroque mechanism to another. All the while, that blasted bird chirped away. I was trying to get warm, blowing into my cupped hands and stretching them out toward the candle's glow. I'd been out for a stroll, a dozen oysters in a tankard, hoping it would spark my imagination. Garrick, my editor, had warned before he'd left at sundown that I'd better come up with some choice nugget of humbug for the morrow's run or I'd feel the full blast of his wrath. The old man, like his publication, was more hot air than actual horror, but still I hated to disappoint him. He was like a father to me, or at least to my flights of fancy. Harrow, he'd say. You might be the finest confabulator on this godforsaken island, whereas another might have taken the term to mean liar. I understood it to be an appellation of artistic prowess. 
That late night, though, I was neither. My mind was as blank as the page in front of me. Rufus Shard, my competitor at the Cocaine Times, with whom I usually had drinks at France's Tavern on Monday evenings, once told that he'd overheard P.T. Barnum, the humbug's humbug, say in relation to one of his critics that there was only so much imagination in a given individual, and when it was gone, that person was bereft of the ability to wonder. To think after I'd come up with the Hell's Gate Mermaid, the headless strangler of Battery Park, <laughs> Colonel Miranda's live burial, the Congo homunculus, igniting imagination from Slate Street to 42nd and beyond, frightening the weak of heart and head, that I was now as empty as a politician's promise. The thought of it drew a shiver. Just as despair was sinking its claws into me, there was a great bang, the flinging wide of the door to the street, which was down a short set of steps to my left. The wind rushed up from outside, rifling the papers on the office desks, guttering the weak flame in the fireplace and extinguishing my candle. I heard the door slam shut as I groped for matches. There came a heavy tread upon the stairway, every other as sharp and as distinctive as a hammer blow. I'm afraid I'm only courageous in the articles I pen, and so my hand shook badly as I relit the wick and spun to encounter the intruder. He stood in the dim light of the entranceway, his beard, his glare, his stillness put me off. He exuded a sense of tension, a spring about to snap, and stared at me imperiously as if I had intruded upon him. I could tell from his peacoat and his broad fall breeches that he was a man of the sea. Nothing, noting his silk top hat and overall countenance, the stern glare of one who seemed used to giving orders, I surmised he was more than a common sailor. He had his sea bag over his shoulder and a boarding axe gripped in his right hand. Only when he shifted position and tapped the floor did I notice that his left pant leg had been cut back and the appendage had been replaced with an artificial limb made of what appeared to be whalebone. I controlled my fear and, as nonchalantly as possible, said, Can I help you? He continued to stare. Are you aware that you've come to the offices of the Gorgon's Mirror, I asked. He stepped closer. Yes, he said in a low voice. I seek a fellow by the name of Ishmael. Is this fellow a friend, I asked? A colleague of the sea. We served upon the same ship. If I may ask, why are you looking for him? Sir, don't play games with me. Do you know him or don't you? I was told he works here. No need to be obstreperous, I said, aiming to diffuse him with my writerly vocabulary. Pull up a chair there. I pointed to the seat behind me, him at the head of the illustrator's desk. You look tired, sir, as if you could use a sit-down. Aye, he said. That I could. I come in this morning from Nantucket to South Street, and I've been wandering far and wide looking for this place. The weary sailor half sat, half fell into the chair. When he was settled, he dropped his bag on the floor and removed his hat to place it in his lap, along with that vicious-looking axe. Ishmael, you say? Yes, he worked here for a spell, an ambitious fellow. But he works here no longer? He moved on at the end of the summer, just a couple of months ago, and I'm afraid I don't know where. An old acquaintance in Nantucket said he'd read a book written by Ishmael concerning a certain whaling voyage. That's correct, I said. I read it here when it was merely a manuscript. You read it, said the sailor. Can you tell me? Does it deal with a white whale, perchance? Moby Dick? Yes, I said, and he sat forward. And do you remember the captain of that voyage, as far as he tells it in his book? Yes, I said, a frightful fellow, a mad Quaker from Nantucket. As I recalled, he was missing a... As my tongue was forming the word limb, I looked down and beheld my visitor's whalebone contrivance. He stared at me. What becomes of that captain in the book? I swallowed hard. He is killed. Aye, he said. There were a few beats of silence. You're Ahab? I am. But you died. 
Do you not know that the world and the book are separate voyages? I realized I've been clutching the pen in my hand throughout our entire transaction. I set it in the inkwell and said, in truth, I might understand it better than you think. Ahab suddenly flinched at something unseen. Then you were not dragged overboard and into the depths, I asked. I was, but my neck was miraculously unbroken, and when I hit the water, the noose slipped up over my head. I was taken down, but not like a fish on a line. It was the draft of the sounding leviathan that drew me. I spun like a leaf in the wind, desperate for breath, and the dark was full of stars. And yet here you are, I said. Well, the creature turned from its course, lunged for the surface, and swallowed me whole. The surge, the surge tumbled me over its undulating tongue the size of five beds. My last thought before blacking out was that I should be emulsified in one of the stomachs of Moby Dick and shat out from pole to pole. Instead, God's monster, no doubt reviled by the taste of grievous sin, disgorged me onto the rolling surface of the Pacific. A character from a book come to life, a regular Jonah, I thought as I eyed him. It was easy enough to be frightened by his aspect, but I was beginning to feel a sense of pity, what with his abject expression, the sad fate of a character rent free from his pages. If I remembered Ishmael's words, this fellow had been to college as well as to sea. I've heard that in Ishmael's book, my ship, my crew, myself, are all turned flukes up and sent to Davy Jones. The white whale was the culprit, I said. Moby Dick, he said, and spat on the floor. He muttered something to himself and turned his gaze from me as if embarrassed for not having died with his crew. And what would you have with Ishmael? I want him to know he's not the sole survivor. He made of me, in words, a walking ghost. You came to Manhattan for that? The book was not well received by the reading public and sold woefully. A few handfuls of people may have seen it. He gazed down at the floor and said, I'm also here to find my wife and boy. Your wife and boy, I said, do you have an address? He shook his head and I could feel his weariness. It took years to heal and find my way back to Nantucket. When I arrived, I learned that she'd taken the child and come to Manhattan to live with her aunt. The next day, I booked passage here. She believes you dead? She'd heard of Ishmael's version of our voyage. He didn't know I'd lived, nor did I he, until I returned. He was packed up, he was picked up by the Rachel. I glimpsed their sails in the distance, but they didn't see me in the water, waving or hear me crying out. How were you rescued? We were closer to the equator than Ishmael writes in the book. He had his, us much further north. I was dragged nearly lifeless from the sea by a pair of native fishermen in a canoe off the coast of the Gilbert Islands, northwest of the Marquesas. Supposedly, there are quite a few discrepancies in those pages. In it, he lies about my age. I'm old enough, but not that old. I think the only thing in the blasted tome that isn't at least tinged with fiction is a description of my madness. Ahab put his hat on, lifted his bag. I'll be on my way. I seek lodging. Thanks to you for your time. I found it hard to believe, but I didn't want him to go. It wasn't that I thought him a splendid interlocutor. He was dreadful to look at, and his voice was a croaking in the wilderness. What struck me was his story and what I could do with it. There was more fodder in the truth of his tale for at least a, the feast of bunkum that you could shake a stick at. In the morning, I'd catch Garrick's ear and make my case that the real biography of Captain Ahab could boost sales of the Gorgon's Mirror, the fantastic, the forlorn, the frightening, and the philosophical. This was a walking ghost we could harness. Before he turned to the stairs, I said, you have no clue at all as to where to find your family. No, except that the street is named after a fruit. No sooner were the words out of his mouth than the muscles of his face constricted into a dark oval, and he whimpered. 
I carefully approached, putting my hand on his shoulder. Are you ill, sir? I inquired. No, it's only that I've forgotten how to laugh. You seem exhausted, Ahab. We have a faint, an old fainting couch in the back storeroom beyond the presses. The thing's as big as a whaleboat. I've slept upon it many a night, quite comfortable. Besides, it's far too late to look for lodging. The world is asleep. Come, no charge. I'll help you search for your wife tomorrow. And my boy, he said, he took him by, I took him by the arm and relieved him of his boarding axe and bag and led him through the various rooms of the Gorgon's mirror. He followed slowly, and I felt as if I was dragging him. When he was finally situated on the couch, he closed his eyes and instantly fell asleep. The poor fellow, I thought, as I made my way back to my desk. There I took up my pen, ready to exploit his misadventures. Garrick had better scrape together a raise for me, I told myself. I struck with my harpoon, and the ink began to flow. That's the first chapter. <laughs> All throughout the book, it's peppered with these stories that Ahab tells Harrow about his return from uh, the death, from his death, really. Uh, and it's kind of like Odysseus's tales as he returns, you know, to, uh, to home. And each one of these little stories that are told that Harrow writes down and uses as one of his articles in the Gorgon's Mirror is like a, fan a fantastic or a horrific story. This one here is about... Um, it's about a character who shows up in the book later, uh, and it's uh, about a manticore, all right? Now, here's a book about Ahab with a manticore, but you have to remember that, that Harrow is the one telling the story, and this is his bread and butter. So when you read the book, you have to realize that Harrow is writing the book, you know what I mean? So does it make sense that there's a manticore in it? Fuck yeah, you know what I mean? So... So anyway, all right, so here this one, they, they go out and they, they hear, overhear that this manticore, they, they're, they've, try, they've traced some of these people that they think are involved in, you know, that have his son and so forth, and they overhear this thing about the manticore, and they have this conversation afterward when they get back home, all right? It never struck me how cold it was out till the night's action was finished and we were holed up in my writing parlor, drinking gin in the glow of the fireplace. The incident left both of us far different, uh, uh, bo left both of us for different reasons, too jittery for sleep. Me, I didn't like taking chances. For, as for Ahab, it was the sound of his son's voice, or so we believed. He sat on the couch smoking his pipe and studying the picture of his wife and boy. As I lit one of my cheap cigars, I happened to look over at him and noticed that he displayed a most hideous expression. I recalled the face he wore when he told me he'd forgotten how to laugh. I guess this ghastly mask was the result of his having forgotten something even more necessary. Trying to keep him from foundering in the slough of despond, I said, And Ahab, what of the creature they had trapped? What was it? I'm more interested in who Alabaster is. No, not Alabaster, Malbaster. Yes, that fellow, but the creature doesn't pique your interest. I've heard of it before, he said. A creature that can speak and has the stinger of a scorpion at the tip of its long tail? Sounds like something I'd confabulate for the mirror. Aye, and how did you hear about such a thing? On my journey to Australia from the Gilberts aboard the American Clipper, the eastern state, we put into Vanuatu for a load of coconuts. We had but a short stay. One of the three nights we were in port, I spoke to a native, Olima, who had sailed on British ships and knew English. He sat down and bought me a whiskey in hopes of he could practice the language. 
This was a hard-working, honest man. I had no reason to doubt him. I suppose to write the things I do, it requires being a doubter, I said. When, you, when you're swallowed by Leviathan and live to tell about it, you recognize the truth when you hear it. So let's hear it, I said, and poured him another drink to loosen his tongue. Getting anything out of Ahab when he knew you were trying to get something it was a project. I played it nonchalant, smoked my cigar and waited. When nothing was forthcoming, I said, it can't be real. The captain nodded wistfully to indicate it was. The fellow told me he was on a whale ship, the suspicion, out of Peterhead, Britain. It was the only ship from the fleet there that sailed the vast distance to the southern seas. The rest of the whalers in that port all headed north into the Arctic Circle. On the journey back from Pacific to Atlantic, the suspicion put in at one of the atolls on the Deception Islands on the tip of Cape Horn. There was a fellow there, a Spaniard by the name of Sarcosa, who had one of those beasts in captivity. Ahab, consider what you're trying to, who you're trying to dupe with this cock and bull, bull, I said. Olima swore to it, said the captain. Sarcosa had ex excavated a large battle pit and built a tree, a tree post arena around it covered with a thatched roof. He told Olima, the other sailors, that he had in captivity the most powerful beast in the world. My friend told me his fellow seamen were skeptical as Sarcosa never allowed anyone to get a look at the creature. While the suspicion was docked in the tiny port, another ship, a large fishing boat, arrived with a strange cargo. The crew of that ship had captured a giant sloth, a supposedly extinct creature in the jungles of Brazil. It was bigger than any bear, and the whole deck of the ship was taken up by an enormous crate that held the monster. They bet Sarcosa that their sloth would be victorious in a battle against whatever he was putting up. Olima said the Brits bet on the match, but he didn't. They gathered round the pit, the, ste the steamy air, a bug stew. Wads of money were wagered. Gallons of brandy called Pisco were consumed. There was drunkenness and the firing of pistols into the thatched ceiling. When the giant sloth was released, it roared, and my knee Vanuatu friend nearly ran. He forced himself to stay so that he might catch a glimpse of Sarkosa's creature. Eventually, it made an appearance, a sleek cat like a puma, its coat rusty brown, its ringlets dark blonde, the face of an angel. She was beautiful until she opened her mouth and kept opening it to reveal the rows of tearing canines that turned in unison like an ingenious mechanical device. Every time her tail lashed out and buried its stinger inches deep in the sloth, the lumbering beast had a seizure, eyes rolling back, drool, a near-human moan. All the while she spoke calm poetry in the lightest, most lovely voice. One of his fellow sailors told Alima that her verses were from Giambattista's epic Fathomless Angel. Olima didn't understand Spanish, but he said the sound of it was beautiful. What was horrible was when she ate through the, the sloth's neck with the speed and precision of a cross-cut saw in the hands of two able lumbermen. He made a motion as if washing his hands when he spoke about the blood and gore that sprayed in all directions. The head fell like a rock to the ground, he swore. What did they call the creature, I asked. Olima told me it was a manticore. And you believe this? Certainly. Ahab, 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 I said. There's an art to making things up. The Salima may have been a good sailor and fine for a chat and pipe of an afternoon, but he was a terrible liar. One needs to manipulate the language, massage the falsehood, manufacture the idiosyncratic. I can guarantee you that the story you heard was bunk. I had to stifle a laugh at the giant sloth. The captain gave me one of those biblical stares from Ishmael's novel. There was a time, he said, when I believed in nothing. Hooey, I thought, but when Ahab finally turned in, I stayed up burning the oil, relating Olima's story of the manticore. 
There were more than a few laughs in the task, and I did some passing fair work at drawing the creature forth into reality. When I finally laid the pen down, the birds had begun to sing. I knew I'd see Mavis somewhere the next day, and she'd be expecting a piece for Garrick. Thank you. bartenders nicely and treat them well and buy a lot of drinks, either alcohol or not. And we'll be back in a little while. You have been listening to the Fantastic Fiction at KGB podcast, recorded live at the KGB bar. I'm Rajan Khanna. We hope you enjoyed what you heard, and we thank you for listening. We also wish to thank Gordon Linzer for providing the audio. And always, thanks to our many fans of Fantastic Fiction at KGB for supporting us all these years. See you next month.